Chris grew up with ADHD, but she wasn't aware of it until her late 20s. I didn't really like all the parts of school. I had like three jobs in high school. So that's kind of how I grew up, just like always on a hunt for adventure, for new experiences, meeting new people. This didn't stop her though from becoming a founder and the CEO of a successful Y Combinator startup. And being surrounded by YC founders was really beneficial for me because being in, in these startup communities have really like challenged me to believe that I can do more. Now, her company Shimmer is making ADHD coaching easy and affordable. Hey Chris, I'm super excited to have you here. I heard about you and one of my best friends from middle school, John, and you decided to start your company Shimmer a few years ago. It's amazing that you're highlighting and bringing attention and resources to the mental health space. People are seeing how important it is in sports and school and education in early life. And it's really a privilege for us to be able to have you on to highlight some of the good work that you've done and also the work that we still have yet to do to improve these conditions for everybody. So with that, I'd love to start just with yourself personally, what you were like growing up and that whole story. Yeah, thanks for having me, first of all. As a kid, I was a little bit of a rebel. I didn't really like all the parts of school that was like school parts. I really liked all the social aspects, sports, anything that has to do with people. I did a lot of like basketball, volunteering. I like had like three jobs in high school. And I would skip school, so I would make I would say that my availability was like full availability, even though I was in high school. So that's kind of how I grew up, just like always on a hunt for adventure, for new experiences, meeting new people. And then the more like near past was I went to business school for undergrad, continued to do a lot of volunteering, just learning more about like different problems in the world and getting to know different people. And then worked in consulting. So I worked at Bain for three or so years until I realized that I wasn't really making the impact I wanted to make. So I ended up doing full-time social impact consulting in Berlin. And that was kind of the coolest experience ever. Berlin is an amazing, amazing city for a million different reasons. And then realized that even though I loved social impact and what we we're doing, but I still felt super far away from what I was the people that I was impacting, it would be like four layers deep. We would be like advising like a government on how to work with a foundation to work with this specific initiative that was in Africa helping these farmers. And I was like five degrees later, finally, it's it's just harder to grasp. So that's kind of the impetus about how I got to where I got to. The last thing I wanted to add was along with like the vein of just loving people and loving to get to know people. I also had like multiple long sabbaticals where I went backpacking pretty much everywhere in the world and did a lot of kind of homestays or uh, I guess time and energy exchanges. So like living on farms and working on the farm to get your food and housing paid for that kind of thing. So that's also a part of the, the story, but that gives you like a broad stroke and we can go wherever you want. Yeah. So I also worked, I think maybe three or four jobs by the time I went to college, but it was never three at once. And I was a good kid. I don't know, intrinsically motivated. I actually loved getting good grades and just learning. So I'm curious, what were those jobs for you? And like, why did you even want to work in high school when most people don't? Looking back in hindsight, school itself, the way it was taught, wasn't super interesting for me. I was just looking for my kick somewhere else. I worked all sorts of jobs. My favorite one was I did almost every job under the sun at the basketball 
community basketball league. So I started off scorekeeping for like $3 and 50 cents an hour until I like moved up to like refereeing, coaching. Eventually I ran the, the program. This was like when I was like 18, 19, a little bit older, but I started when I was 13 as a scorekeeper. And that community was always one I kept very close to me throughout high school. But I also worked at Bath and Body Works, the one with the lotions and stuff. I worked at a dress store. I worked at a mining company, helping them just like file stuff. So it was really like odds and ends, nothing too groundbreaking. But for me, the best part was just getting out there and just talking to people. Most of my stuff involved customer service. So that was kind of the main thing of just talking to people and just helping people do whatever that they need to do. That's amazing. Wow, that's I, I know cool. there's definitely going to be listeners tuning in who are in that stage in high school or middle school themselves. It's not handed to you in high school. It's not an expectation. So I'm just curious, like, how did you find yourself in some of these opportunities? How did you find so many interesting and, and diverse jobs to do? I'm super extroverted. So I have a little brother, for example, and he didn't do any of this. He closed himself in the house. So I can definitely understand the whole spectrum. But for me, I just love talking to people. So the scorekeeping job, I started off just playing basketball in the league. And then I asked how I could help because I like the community. I like to just be around. I was hanging around there all the time. I thought I might as well do something. And I think part of it was also I liked, I like to feel important, I think. And in hindsight, it's funny because those things aren't really that important, I guess. But being the scorekeeper or like being the referee felt like kind of important. People would look to me for things. That was on the basketball side for Bath and Body Works and the, the dress store that I worked at. That was more, I think, of a girly thing. So all my friends hung out at the mall. So if you worked a job at the mall, you would have all the same lunch times as everyone. I was just trying to have fun and put myself out there and just get to know myself and get to know the, I guess, my community around me. Going to what you mentioned about taking sabbaticals, I think you said you, you took, you've taken multiple sabbaticals and I actually, ju I just started one. I quit my job in in early January. So I, I also have a personal blog and thank you. It took me a year to actually, actually quit. And since writing about my experience, people have reached out to me and through my own experience, just like a year of turmoil and agonizing over this decision, I realized like it, it feels like a really big decision, but once you actually do it, you don't look back and you don't regret anything at all. So I'm curious, what was your experience like leading up to that first sabbatical, but then also you came back for at least another one. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this is my, one of my favorite things is to convince people to take sabbaticals. And it can be a sabbatical from school. It can be a sabbatical from work. I think for me being an extrovert, just getting to spend a long period of time purely just socializing and seeing things and getting to know the world. I can't imagine anything better. And the more I got into it, the more I kind of was addicted. I still, every day, kind of wonder when's the next time I'm going to do it, which will probably be soon. But I think for me, it's like, it's really the freedom of it that drew me in. I would always try to live at youth hostels and I would just wake up in the morning, go downstairs, sit at the table and say like, this is a place that I found that seems cool. Who wants to come with me? And I'll just yell that and then someone would come with me. But that probably sounds terrifying to any introvert. They're like, no, yeah. I would never do that. <laughs> I would not do that. <laughs> hey, Chris, I'd be super curious to hear about some of the communities 
that really helped shape who you are. I've been thinking a lot about how you've been speaking to communities. It's a really big and important part of my upbringing as well. I grew up in Minnesota, like predominantly white, like middle school and high school. So when I moved to Berkeley, I really became more comfortable with like the Asian side and that culture surrounded by so many people and helped me embrace that. So I'm curious for you, what communities really speak to you and, and what communities have you built yourself? Yeah. One of the philosophies I kind of live by is like each phase of your life, what's best for you then. So for example, when people say, oh, I'm going to like do all the things I want to do when I'm like 80 years old. I'm like, but you're not going to want to do the same things anymore. You're probably going to want to golf or something. So for me, all of the communities I've had were a very good fit for the time I was at. So an example is that basketball community. That was a massive one for me because while everyone at that age as a teenager was mostly hanging out with teenagers, by being in that basketball community, I was immersed with, there was all ages from five-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And so to be able to be in that community at that time was really beneficial for me because I had a different mindset, in my opinion, than a lot of my friends who are only interacting with people our age. And it helped me meet a lot of other families. There were a lot of Filipino families in my community especially in the basketball community in Richmond, where I'm from. And that definitely shaped a lot of my extroversion, kind of some of my values around community and around family. That was a perfect time for that to come into my life. And then now, last year going through YC and, going, and being surrounded by YC founders was really beneficial for me because it kind of amped up the pace that I thought I could be or that I believed that I could do being in in these startup communities have really like challenged me to believe that I can do more and so it was a perfect timing for those types of communities to be here for me and then in the future there's probably going to be different communities like maybe golf communities or something I don't actually golf I'm just using that <laughs> as like a random example to like point into the future but maybe something else in the future that will that will shape who I am then I was listening to a podcast you that you were on, I think it's called ADHD Rewired. And in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that like on that day that it was recorded, you didn't take your Adderall because you said that you tend to be more scatterbrained when you don't take it, but then you're also weirder and funnier. Yes. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not calling you weird. I think that's what, how you <laughs> describe yourself. So I was just curious about today. Like what was your approach for today? So... I also didn't. I try not to in days I have a lot of meetings or a podcast. But my process for this podcast, I listened to your guys' podcast. That was part of my process. Just to get like a vibe of what things are like beforehand. I'd love to dive in a little dip deeper. I'm sure there's some people listening who some form of ADHD themselves, but many more who don't have that experience. And how would you describe that to someone who wants to empathize with people who are more ADHD? Oh, that, that's, that's hard. That's an interesting question. So the first thing I will say is that everyone with ADHD is different. For ADHD, there's three presentations. There's hyperactive, which people, how people think about it is like the little boy jumping off the walls. There's inattentive, which how people think about it is the small girl who's daydreaming at her desk. And then there's the third one, which is combined type, which is if you satisfy the symptoms of both the first two. So I'm combined type. 
I have symptoms from both of them. The best way I try to describe it to the people in my life is that there's always like a lot of train of thoughts in my head going on at the same time. And I jump between them in thinking. I think one time I even asked someone, I was like, how many thoughts are you thinking right now? And they're like, what do you mean? They're like zero. And I was like, what? That's wild. I'm never thinking zero things. Focus is like the hardest thing for me. It's also very easy for me to just like get excited about something and forget about something else. So memory is like another thing. So everyone with ADHD will will look pretty different. But I have found since getting diagnosed and being in the community and a lot of more people coming out to me that generally people with ADHD or that are neurodiverse will attract other people who are neurodiverse, even people who are not publicly open with their ADHD have like told me afterwards and then I'm like, oh, okay, like this is why we're such close friends. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, like taking a more hist historical lens, like I read something, some article, I was like, nowadays you experience more information than someone did in the 15th century in their whole lifetime. So I'm curious on like the volume of diagnoses with ADHD and other similar conditions. Has it been increasing over time? And is that because we're like diagnosing more and more accurately? Or is it actually being influenced by modern day technology? Yeah, I would say it's a blend of both, but it's mostly the first. There are a lot more diagnoses because of the awareness and because of the tools that we have. A stat is... Children with ADHD, the diagnosis rates is somewhere between like 10 and 12%. And adults is somewhere around 5%. And you don't just lose ADHD. So where is that difference coming from? One big driver is the fact that just a lot of kids get diagnosed now and not as many do before. I think I saw a stat that people over 70 or 80 years old, there's almost 0% diagnosis and there's no way there was 0% ADHD. So that's one of the biggest drivers. But I think separate from... ADHD is just our kind of inattention economy. Like you can have a lot of inattention issues and not have ADHD. Our human brains are not really built to grasp that much and to switch that much and to like switch that quickly. And so that causes a lot of issues, I think that are separate, but related to ADHD. And I'm actually currently reading a book. I think it's called Refocus by Johan Hari. And he talks exactly about how like a lot of things that have to do with inattention are not solely the person's issue and their job to fix and within their capacity to fix, but it's also like us as a society, what are we creating for our people? Because our, our society has been created essentially for like machines and we're not machines. Yeah, the inattention society, it's really interesting. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to create more of a long-form podcast. I mm -hmm. personally recognize that I started watching shorter clips, feeling like I learned a lot, and then retaining almost none of that. Yeah. And the opposite of that for me has been reading books, hearing stories told in depth, and sort of the same point hammered over and over again. And those, even though I get less of it in a day, I seem to retain a little bit more of that. It's like we've been trained to like shorter things but it's not necessarily a good thing. I actually have a quote I wrote down from the book. When you practice moving at a speed that is compatible with human nature and you build that into your daily life, you begin to train your attention and focus. So there's like two things that's going on there. One, he talks about like how human nature is actually not 
designed to move that quickly and to switch that much. But two, that it's actually like a muscle that you can train and build. So if you do meditation, if you read more longer form books, you actually can train your attention and focus to be better. That hit me because I've always been on and off with that meditation, but that quote, it kind of changed how I looked at it and made me want to bring it back into my life in a more sustainable way. Wow. Let me piggyback off of that quote a little bit because you're clearly someone who has given a lot of thought, training, and attention to, you know, thought itself. It's very meta and sort of learning how to coincide with ADHD. I was reading the article that you've shared on your website around beginning as a child with ADHD, something around mm -hmm. children age 12 get 20,000 more negative messages about themselves than any other kids their age. And so I'm just curious if you would share perhaps your story growing up with it and how you found mechanisms or ways to cope and, and eventually like, turn maybe that into a strength of yours and a personality. Yeah, for me, actually, in preparation for a pitch I was doing, I went and went through all my home videos and found all these videos of me as like a four-year-old. I think they're so cute and they're hilarious. But a lot of the videos are just like my mom telling me to like sit down and like stop moving and like all these things. It's really funny. But yeah, I think as a kid, for me, most of... Most of like the negative messages I got had to do with my hyperactivity. And that's actually a reason why a lot more males or boys get diagnosed than females. Because a lot of times for males, hyperactivity is like the main symptom. And so other people notice it, it bothers other people, and therefore they do something about it. Versus with a lot of females or girls, inattention is the main symptom. And because it doesn't bother other people, it just bars them from getting what they need to get done. It's not as easily diagnosed, but that was kind of a sidebar. So for me, hyperactivity was a main thing. I think I got kicked out a lot of stuff. Like I got kicked out of school, not like permanently, but like out of classes. I got kicked out of like ballet class. I was always like being told to like sit down or just to like calm down and to like be more sensible, that kind of thing. I think overall, I also got a lot of pluses from my ADHD as a kid, like having a lot of energy and being super hyperactive, like it helped me like meet a lot of people, make a lot of friends. I know that's not the case for a lot of kids. So when I speak, it's definitely very much so my experience. But for me, those were kind of the main things. It was mostly related to hyperactivity. And then the way that I kind of got through school was just by being like, Honestly, I don't even think I was smart. I went to China for a year and a half and I learned a lot of math really quickly. And then when I came back, I didn't have to think about math for a long time because I'd learned all of it in the year that I was in China. So that Wait, gave me a lot of bu a buffer room. You just went to China for a year and learned math. Can you rewind a little bit and tell us the backstory behind that? Yes. So I was sent to China, all three of us, me and my brother, my sister, for a year. I think I was six or seven at the time. It's probably related to my dad's job. But I started school with all D minuses. And I've never gotten a D minus in my life. Actually, I don't think I've ever gotten graded in my life. Because you're like seven, but in China, you did. So I started with all D minuses, I failed everything. I still remember like, stealing my notebook from like the stack because I didn't finish my homework and try to finish my homework and stuff it back into the stack. I've been getting in trouble for that. 
but within a year I went from all D minus to like all A plus. And so I can definitely speak highly of China's schooling system just in the realm of education. I think there's so many other challenges or problems as it relates to like growing up as a well-rounded kid, but I learned a lot of math. They just moved at it at an incredibly fast pace. And so when I came back to Canada, I was only there for a year. Everything was super easy for me in terms of math. While we're still on the topic of education, as you've grown and now you're, now you're a founder where there's just a lot more freedom and control, have you figured out what kind of learning you thrive in? Have you figured out what works best for you when it comes to learning style? Yeah, definitely. For me, I thrive in like experiential, kinesthetic, like touching things experiencing it but i also don't feel like always that's the most efficient so when it comes to efficiency i generally like to read things that are like bullet point condensed just so i like have that knowledge and then i can be able to refer to it afterwards and that's solely because in society now we have like so many aids to our brain like we can just read the bullets know that they're there and then be able to search them later but one day ago or like some days ago, like you couldn't do that. In that case, reading would not be my first choice because it's a little bit more boring for me. I have another question <laughs> before we go yes, to Shimmer. Go. This is like on the topic of like productivity and tools. So mm -hmm. I've been struggling with, with focus nowadays. I literally just paid $80 for freedom, which is like this website blocker. Like I'm paying money just so I can avoid looking at websites. And so I'm curious, like what techniques you've had to, you know, put in your toolkit so that you can stay focused. So, so many. I have an ADHD coach, obviously, since Streamer does ADHD coaching and we, I learn new things every week and, and test out new things. One big one that I'm working on right now is working with my circadian rhythm. A lot of people with ADHD have this issue, but we wake up late and we sleep late. And I had spent a lot of my life trying to force myself into the schedule of, I guess what you read of like, oh, successful people wake up at 5 a.m. Like I'm exaggerating a bit, but that doesn't work for me. I'm super groggy in the morning and I have some like genius thoughts at like midnight or like 1 a.m. So that's one thing that I'm currently working on is understanding like how my energy levels like differ throughout the day and then how to best intersperse the things I need to do, whether it's work or home stuff into those hours. The other one that has been super helpful for me that I made a reel about was actually doing deep work blocking. So I have these three hour blocks that I have almost every day, I think four days a week that are on my calendar where before going into the block, I will write down the things that I'm going to do. And then I will declare that I'm like entering the block. I'll, I'll often even tell someone, I'll like tell my boyfriend, like, okay, now, now I'm doing it, you know, and like, I'll send him on WhatsApp what I'm going to do. Because I've done that, I won't do anything outside of it. And it's the simple act of declaring it. I'll like, look at the list. If I find myself going outside of it, I'll look at the list, be like, is this on the list? If not, I put on like my distraction sheet that's like on the side. And then I will come out of it and it's almost like racing against yourself because you've declared that you're going to do these things. So then I'll be like, okay, how much of this stuff did I do? And then because I have these deep work blocks, I've been able to do so much more in my nine to nine to five, because I used to do all my deep work stuff at like midnight. 
when because then I have no more meetings but now I've kind of made it work better for me so the concept of like time blocking has been super helpful for me and that took also a few weeks of experimenting with my coach to get at the exact way that I do it now sweet all right Chris you've talked about your own journey as a kid growing up with ADHD we've gone over and learned so many cool personal tips and hacks that you've done to get it under control and now your company that you founded is hoping to help other people conquer their own ADHD and find success in life despite it. So tell me more about how you got started on this journey and what you've done so far. We used to run support groups. That's originally what we started Shimmer on. So we did support groups for identities. So Asian, queer, to challenges, anxiety, depression, and eventually, in pivot mode, we ended up spinning up the beta of what now is Shimmer 2.0, which is ADHD coaching. And how we got to it was primarily driven by my diagnosis. So that was when I got diagnosed during the pivot. And I, I guess like true Asian fashion, my first thought was, I can't take medication. What else can I do? Just because I grew up not even taking medication for like I don't know, like the flu and the cold. My grandma used to make these like warm, like disgusting tasting things that I would have to drink whenever I got sick. So I got diagnosed. I was looking for a behavioral solution. I went down this rabbit hole hunt of doing, I think I did between 10 and 15 different consultations with ADHD coaches. And just the experience, not with any one coach, but just as a whole was very confusing and frustrating and not very ADHD friendly. Just navigating all those websites, trying to figure out what the differences between them are. And then eventually once even having those conversations and landing on a coach, hearing the price, which often is like $200 plus and just being blown away and being like, okay, there's so many steps that even if it wasn't for the price, I would have kind of given up by the end. So we started talking to more people who are in similar shoes as me, and then eventually started talking to clinicians and coaches and realized that this problem was known of, but there just wasn't really a solution. And so that's kind of how Shimmer was born. We were looking for a way to not only offer coaching in a more affordable way, but also offer coaching in a more ADHD-friendly way not just the coaching itself, but like the entire process of like finding a coach, going with a coach and even leaving the coach, having all of that be more ADHD friendly, at like a way lower price point. And so what we do is we try our best to take all the other stuff that the coach needs to do out of the mix so that they can just focus on coaching. And then what we also do is we take what normally happens in a one hour session and a lot of it is psychoeducation, so educating members about their ADHD and taking that, pre-making it already and putting it in the app so that the coaches can just kind of prescribe it to the members so that they can do it on their own time. So with both of those levers together, that's kind of how we achieve our like five to 10 times more affordable price point. Can you tell us a bit on the numbers side? How many people in, in America have ADHD and then also on the coach side? How many coaches are there today? Yeah, great question. So on the member side, there is 13 million adults who are diagnosed in the U.S. And then there's another like nine or so million children who are diagnosed. And I mentioned in the beginning just the sheer 
difference in just percentages, how it's like 10 to 12 for children and 5% for adults. So that number is like naturally increasing just based on like the diagnosis raising. However, we don't only serve people who are diagnosed. We also serve people who are self-diagnosed or just want to work on certain skills that are related to people related to ADHD. And then on the coach side, there isn't any exact number because coaches can come from a bunch of different backgrounds. Like we have therapists turn coaches on our platform. We have like special education teachers turn coaches. And then we have like more pure, purebred coaches who like went through coaching specific like schooling credentials to be, let's say a health and wellness coach or an ADHD coach or a mental health coach. There are a lot more people who would be interested if there was kind of like an easier way to get into coaching. So we're working on kind of our like interview and training process. And in the near future, hopefully we'll be able to launch our own training program that is a bit more accessible and affordable than what's out there right now. The kind of biggest credentialing services out there, you have to spend like upwards of 10K wow. to, to, to get that credential. And so it naturally boxes out certain backgrounds of people for us like that diversity inclusion is really important as well and making sure that our supply of mental health clinicians not just clinicians but coaches and the entire helping profession is becoming more diverse as well and that part of that is helping to ease that access into becoming someone in the helping profession you know my perception prior to hearing more about this from you is you know, mental health i associate with therapy and therapists so I'm curious if you could just help the audience and myself understand more of the nuances between going to see a therapist versus going to have having a coach. Mm -hmm. The first thing I would say is that there is a lot of overlap with a lot of helping professions, but the biggest difference between therapy and coaching is that therapy is, is treatment. It's about helping someone who is a patient, which is the terminology, get to zero, like from negative to zero, is the most part of traditionally what therapy and medication, all those things are for. Coaching, as you can imagine, because there's also like basketball coaching, the term coaching is used a little bit more widely. And it's generally more future looking and gets people kind of like from zero upwards. I'm extremifying a bit to paint the difference, but that's one big difference. And the other one is therapy is a little bit more backwards looking. So it's generally about like, unpacking your past and who, how the experiences you have had relate to who you are today to kind of change your current state of mind versus coaching is more from the present to the future. Well, we've been talking a lot about behavioral therapy and coaching. I know there's also, I mean, things you'll see in the news around like medication specific and prescription treatments as well. Where do you see shimmer at the intersection of just behavioral health and treatment? And, versus more like medication-oriented treatment? Yeah. So medication works for, I think, 75, I'm probably within 5%, 75% of people who do it. So it is extremely effective for people with ADHD. It's like one of the not many conditions where there actually is like a solution that is very easy that works. I've had a journey towards this, as I mentioned from the beginning, because I was not pro-medication before, or I wasn't actively pro-medication. 
So for one, it's definitely an amazing solution. There's so many stories of people who, after the first time taking stimulant medication or even non-stimulant medication, their life changed completely. It allows you to focus, to do things that that you want to do well or to just do it. I want to just point out that it's great. For me personally, I've and this is where Shimmer comes in. We try to play where I think that there is a big gap. And for me, the gap is really in like a behavioral solution. We are offering coaching, but I think that there is a lot of different behavioral things that we can make that is separate from medication, like even just like in app and stuff. So for the foreseeable future, Shimmer is going to be behavioral. And but I guess you never, never say never. I was poking around the Shimmer YouTube channel and I saw about a year ago, I think you all were doing group calls or group coaching sessions. And then mm -hmm. now on the website, it's only one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I'm curious, what were some of the key learnings and what was the decision like to go from group calls, group coaching to just one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. So group was for our support group format. So it actually wasn't coaching. There wasn't any kind of personalized help. We were solving a completely different problem then. It was mid-pandemic. We were solving the problem of loneliness and we were grouping people together who wanted to talk about the same thing. Versus now, we do one-on-one -on -one for ADHD coaching. Our core is to make sure that first we support people with ADHD in like personalized way because everyone with ADHD is so different. We found that the biggest problem was actually just people with ADHD just doing the things that they said that they, or that they wanted to do and getting that personalized help. Okay. Actually, this is a little bit of a tangent, but you did bring up loneliness and I'm sure you spent time thinking about that, you know, before the pivot. So yeah, I'm just curious about what you think is going on in the world broadly with loneliness. Yeah. So when we had done support groups, it was probably the like, peak of loneliness during the pandemic, right? When you literally could not physically be with other people. But I think that we are still in the loneliness pandemic in the ability to connect with each other in like the old fashioned way, because there's so many ways that we're kind of getting fixes through social media, through like watching stories and feeling like you're kind of there. But, and so that kind of like scratches your itch so that you don't put in the extra effort to actually try to hang out with your friends. That's something we actually think about a lot, even with our current shimmer, where we don't want to get anyone addicted to our app or to do everything on our app. The same book I was talking about before from Johan Hari, he's talking about how even now, like the way that people converse just takes turns saying their thing and like no one's really asking questions and diving deeper and spending time in someone else's thought. And I think actually it was a professor. She said to me once, she was like, your generation doesn't know how to have conversations anymore. And I was really offended at the time, but I kind of like think back at that moment and I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. There's like That's this true. theory, I think it's called like Dunbar's number. It's like 150 is the, the number of the relationships that you can have. And then you have like, it's like concentric circles. So in the middle, you have like room for one or two really close people, like your significant other. Mm -hmm. And then you have like three to five friends and, and family and then it's like you can have up to 10 to 15 real friends and then it's like everything outside of that is just like looser and looser and then but like the key point is it's only 150 or like give or take yeah 
Yeah, and we meet so many people now. I started business school two years ago, and then before I've had three or four different jobs, and each job I met a new community of people. So you feel like you have a lot of people, but you don't really talk to all of them all the time. Yeah, I, I totally feel you on that. For me, that is like a big part of the podcast too. Like being able to sit down for 90 minutes with someone these days is mm -hmm. not easy. It's really cool to be able to meet and talk about your ideas and, and your personality as well. Yeah, this is super cool what you guys are doing. Go ahead, Aaron. No, I was just going to question how therapy has become more rapidly adopted by healthcare providers as a part of the plan versus ADHD, which feels like perhaps in some cases more extreme than just your everyday person at a tech company who's getting therapy treatments. There, There is also therapy for ADHD, and then there's also medication, so those things are covered. So not nothing is covered. It's great that therapy and medication and all that is somewhat covered <laughs> in the U.S., and I think that coaching is kind of like the next step, and it's just taking some time to be able to get there. I have a more fun question after that last one that I asked. <laughs> Are there any notable people, celebrities, entrepreneurs, artists that have ADHD that maybe just like we don't really know or it's not very you know mentioned every day? And similarly to that, are there people that you look up to as like role models, mentors, et cetera? Yeah, so there's tons of celebrities who either have ADHD or rumored to have ADHD. Simone Biles is very public about hers because she was the face of Cerebral. But also Justin Timberlake has ADHD as well. And also like great thinkers. I think someone even said like Einstein is rumored to have ADHD. But of course, there was no diagnosis back then. Some of the more superpowers of ADHD. And then in terms of role models with ADHD, I've found out that like, a lot of my closest friends or closest founder friends do have ADHD and being able to like band together with them over this past, like, I don't know, like year or so and learn from them because they've been diagnosed for a lot longer than I have has been super cool. The more I'm open about my ADHD and like all the like weirdness that comes with it, I meet more and more people with ADHD who I really respect. And it's the first time probably in my like career where every single phone call I have for work is like really fun and interesting <laughs> because people are so like openly themselves and it just doesn't feel like work when you're working with people with ADHD because everyone's so just funny. <laughs> it's cool that we talk about like your inspiration celebrities with ADHD because in a way you're becoming that yourself. In the early days, Shimmer 1.0, I think you would post these little infographics on Instagram, and now you're slowly shifting to become the face of these videos, mm. and you're doing short videos and short clips about it. How has that journey been being the face of some of these content and, and having to do more of that for, for Shimmer? So that, I, I love that question. I'm actually working with my founder coach on finding my voice and owning it, and this is a big part of that. I would never imagine me putting videos out there of like me just talking and relaying information so at first it was kind of scary it's still pretty early I just started doing this like a few like a month ago or something but it's been so rewarding being able to convey more emotion in the information that we're putting out there brought like a new like sense of confidence and self to the work that I'm doing 
it also makes it a lot easier for me to reach out to other content creators and organizations who work with people with ADHD because they're like immediately way nicer because they're not like, oh, you're just like a company trying to advertise with us. They're like, oh, I've like watched your reels. Like, I really like this <laughs> one. Like, you're, that one was funny. So I think it's been like super positive. There was like a few times, I think I got my first hate. I mean, it wasn't hate. That's like a little bit. A doubter? Extreme, but some, yeah, like someone made a stitch on TikTok. It was the first time anyone ever made a stitch of my TikTok, and I was so it's excited. I opened itself. it. Yeah, I opened it, and it was her basically like being like, "No, you don't know anything about ADHD, and this is why." And so, yeah, that was like equally exciting and also sad at the same time because I went through like this motion, like roller coaster, in that moment or in those like thirty seconds, I guess. So yeah, I think that's the other part. I think it's been just exciting. Videos right now, you could get either zero views or like 30,000 views and you don't know what's going to happen. I still can't correlate it to like what in the video actually created that versus with stills. I got like the same amount of views and likes and comments no matter what still I put out there. So it kind of just like started to feel dull. So I think that like adrenaline that comes with putting <laughs> videos out there is also an interesting one that I'm navigating through. I put a blog out recently and also got my first doubter. I don't call it, I don't also don't call it <laughs> haters, call it doubter. And this person that I actually know DM'd me on Instagram was like, nothing about your writing makes me think that you'll be happier. But I was like, oh, this is a milestone. I've never, I've only yeah. gotten positive feedback. And so I like screenshot it and, and saved it in Notion so I can like look back on it later. So it's like a exciting oh, milestone as well. Smart. I should have saved the, the stitch. I'm, I'm sure I can still find it. I hope she, I hope she didn't delete it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say Matt and I on the on the rise pod have yet to hit that first hater milestone, but I'm excited from that time comes around and hopefully in the future we'll get more like funny creative haters and we can do a whole video around. <laughs> I love watching yeah, those. Yeah, that would be really cool. Well, hey, let me let me just end this then by saying first of all, Chris, wonderful to have you on. I want to give you the opportunity to wrap up this for yourself if you want to say anything else or give people resources how they can Find Shimmer. Happy to just give this up. the floor to you. What I would leave with if anyone is thinking about starting a company is that there are just so many, so, so many problems in this world that are just waiting to be solved. And we just need more people who are actually solving like real challenges that are affecting people. You can do something super impactful and passionate and something you're passionate about and like solve a problem that's really close to home for you. So I definitely encourage doing that. And I think we're currently living in a day and age where like anyone of any age can literally start a company or a movement. It doesn't even have to be a company, like a movement, a nonprofit, whatever it is. And you can even do it on the side of what you're doing. And where people can find me, I'm trying to build our Instagram real following. So go to our Instagram. It's at shimmer.care. Our website's exactly the same, www.shimmer.care. And thank you both for, for having me. This was so much fun to dig a little bit deeper and to have like a more like casual, in-depth conversation about some really important topics. Thanks for coming Sweet. on, Chris. Thanks for it's being on here. You. Awesome. Sweet. Um, if you enjoyed that episode, please like and subscribe. We're just getting started to tell the stories of these amazing creators, athletes, and entrepreneurs.
drop a comment below on what was your favorite part of this episode and stay tuned because we're going to be releasing new episodes every two weeks for On The Rise. See you next time.